Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to come together this evening to tr- to focus on your word, to learn more about what it means to trust you, to walk by means of faith, uh, to have faith in your word, to focus upon that which you have taught us, that we might use that as we encounter the various uh, tests in life, as we face both adversity as well as prosperity. Father, we know that you have a purpose uh, for taking us through different trials or different situations And ultimately, this has to do with our spiritual growth, our maturation, and getting rid of that in our life, which is uh, dependence upon the sin nature and teaching us to depend more consistently upon God, the Holy Spirit. Now, we pray that you will help us as we get into a new little section here, Peter's introduction tonight, focusing on the role of tests and adversity in this Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're getting into this new section starting in verse 6. Actually, tonight we're going to be focusing on 6 through 9, doing a little bit of an, of an overview, because this starts to narrow the focus of what Peter is ta- telling his readers about. Now, as I pointed out in the past, among uh, scholars, students of the Word, you often find uh, people talk about Peter as being written to a group of of believers who are encountering persecution. And they often try to figure out how this related to Rome or Roman persecution, and I don't think you can do that at this particular time time in history. Uh, it, It makes a lot more sense, since he's writing this to those who are identified as the pilgrims or as the aliens, uh, those who are resident aliens in the diaspora, which is always a technical term for the scattered Jews in uh, throughout the Roman Empire, they're no longer living in the um, in the uh, land of Judea, and so he's addressing them, and they're going through persecution. I think it's personal. I think it has to do with the fact that these are believers who have. Uh, put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and they're encountering a lot of opposition, much as Paul encountered tremendous opposition from Jews in Thessalonica, uh, in Philippi, in uh, uh, in uh, Ephesus, and in other, other areas, because when he would initially go in, if you remember from our study in Acts, he would go to a, a synagogue. Sometimes he would teach for a week, sometimes three or four weeks on the Sabbath, there would be a certain number of people who would respond, and then once these issues became clear, then uh, the elders of the synagogue would react sometimes in great hostility, bring him up on charges before the local magistrates. What riots would break out? On the first missionary journey, uh, there were a group of Jews that followed him from city to city, causing all kinds of problems through the way they misrepresented what he was teaching, their slander, uh, the way they maligned uh, Paul and and Silas, I mean Paul and Barnabas, and later Paul and Timothy and Silas. So I believe it's more that kind of a thing. These were believers, Jewish background believers, who because of their faith in Jesus as, as a Messiah were going through rejection. They were going through hostility, ridicule. In some cases, they may have lost jobs. They may have it may have impacted their business. 
there are a lot of different ways in which they they face face these different trials, and so this is the core of why uh, Peter is writing First Peter. What's interesting is as we get into this next section in verses six through nine, we'll be doing a lot of work. Uh, going back and forth into James, which is always kind of fun. Uh, there's a few people here that uh, were with me when I taught James up in uh, Preston City. And a lot of you, I know, have listened to that series. We just have it on audio. It's not on video. But there are a lot of similarities here. The key vocabulary in verses 6 through 9 of First Peter it's the same vocabulary that you have in James 1, 2 through 4. James is written to encourage, again, a group of Jewish background believers in terms of enduring, persevering in the midst of difficult trials and tests. And so there's a lot of similarity in those books. Now, James was written early. It, I believe it's the first New Testament epistle, maybe written as early as 43 or 44 A.D., just about a decade after after the cross, whereas Peter is written somewhat later, probably in the early 60s. And both of these are addressing Jewish background believers. Now, I got a question the other day, and I've been working through this question, the answer to this myself, and that is, well, if James and Peter are written to Jewish background believers, how much application do they have for church age, I mean, for Gentile believers? And the answer is that Jew and Gentile, whether they were early in the church age or later in the church age, are still one in the body of Christ. And so it applies to both, even if there are certain aspects of the circumstances these believers were facing because they were Jewish. Peter is emphasizing certain things. We'll get into this a lot more in First Peter chapter 2. Peter is emphasizing certain things by way of application to them, but it's equally applicable to any believer in the body of Christ because from the day of Pentecost on, all Jews were baptized by the Holy Spirit, the apostles were baptized by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Those who uh, uh, responded to their ministry, uh, the Samaritans and uh, even the Gentiles in Acts 10 and other Jews, for example, um, the followers of John the Baptist in John 19 were uh, were all baptized by the Spirit. So they're all in the body of Christ equally. And so we have to work through that a little bit, but that's kind of the little bit of an overview. And what uh, Peter is doing here is focusing on how to face any kind of persecution, any kind of hostility, any kind of adversity, any kind of difficulty on the basis of understanding God's plan and purpose for our lives. So we're going to dig into some of these very, uh, very important issues. And it's always interesting that when you start talking about suffering and adversity and trials and testing, that these are very popular topics with people because uh, everybody goes through these these particular types of things. Now, what we have to understand just by way of background, a little review of this chart, is that we're looking at this context as I've laid out the last uh, two weeks on really phase two in light of phase three. But terms like saved should be understood more in the sense of being delivered from present trials. 
in, in phase two. Phase one takes place at a moment in time when we trust in Christ as Savior. We believe the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, he rose again the third day, and by trusting in him, we have eternal life. And that that is given to us. We're a new creature in Christ. We're a babe. Uh, Peter talks about this at the beginning of, of uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, that like a newborn babe, we're to desire the milk of the word that we can grow by it. His emphasis is on the word. We grow by the word. That provides our spiritual nourishment. And so this spiritual growth that takes place during our lifetime is part of our progressive, our experiential sanctification as we're learning to be saved from, or delivered from the power of sin in our life. Now, one thing that motivates us as we go through difficult times, and that's specifically what Peter has in mind, is that these, these readers are going through some hard times. It's difficult for them is that as we go through it, we're motivated by the end game, where God is taking us into phase three, into glorification. So that becomes a present time motivator to strengthen us so that we understand where we're going, where the end game is, and we can talk about that. Now, Job uh, has some Good things to say about trouble, difficulty. Job, of course, faced one of the most serious uh, degrees of suffering in the Old Testament in order to teach some things. And I think it's interesting that Job is more than likely the very first book to be written in the Old Testament. The first book that we know of that is inspired by God that was to be preserved and placed in the canon. It preceded Genesis, not in time, but Genesis, remember, is written by Moses during the wilderness wanderings between 1446 and 1406 B.C., whereas Job lived uh, roughly at the time of the patriarchs. His time probably overlapped with uh, the latter part of Abraham's life and the uh, and and Isaac's life. He lived, a, we don't know exactly or precisely, but it was about that same time period. Job is uh, interesting because it's the only book in the Old Testament that doesn't say anything about Israel. It's not even mentioned. So for that reason, among others, it appears that Job was probably written prior to uh, the birth of the Jewish people. So that would put him about the same time as the very beginning and so that's that's not much of an issue. But in Job we read, For man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. And he uses the imagery there of a fire. And if you've ever camped out at night and you are, if you're barbecuing with a grill where you're using charcoal or grill, you stir it up. And, and it's, it's a law of physics that heat rises and those sparks go up and that's inevitable. And so what... Job is saying here is trouble in life is inevitable. We can't get around it. We are going to face adversity, and for several reasons, but primarily because we're living in a fallen world that's corrupt. It's the devil's world, and as long as we're living in a fallen world ruled by uh, the devil, who's the prince and the power of the air, he's the god of this age, then he is... Uh, then we're always going to have trouble, always going to have difficulty. In Job 14.1, Job says, Man who is born of woman, which fits everyone but Adam. Okay, man who is born of woman 
is few of David, uh, few of days and full of trouble. Don't you feel better now? But we have great promises of God related to this concept of trouble. It, it's a just a generic term in the Old Testament for facing difficulty, heartache, trouble, adversity, disappointment. In the Psalms, we read that the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. So this is a great, some of these are great promises to go to that God is our refuge in times of trouble. He doesn't leave us to just deal with the trouble or adversity on our own, but we take refuge in him. Other images that we have in the, uh, in the Psalms, he's like, uh, he provides a cleft in the rock. He is our fortress and he is the one who surrounds us and protects us. In Psalm 31, 7, we read, I will be glad. Now, remember, most of these psalms I'm quoting here are from the early psalms, and they're written by David. And David certainly had his share of difficulty and heartache. He, uh, From the time he left, uh, left home to go fight, uh, just to take lunches to his brothers, and then he ended up fighting Goliath. And once he came to Saul's attention, he was persecuted by Saul, who's the king in Israel, the anointed king in Israel. And Saul is seeking his life. And as we've seen, there are numerous attempts by Saul to take David's life. So he's being persecuted by the man to whom he owes his loyalty. He often, on two occasions, he flees to seek refuge among the Philistines who will protect him. One time they identify, they, they know who he is, and they're afraid of him, and he had to feign madness in order to escape with his life. Uh, but many of the Psalms are written about his enemies, his adversaries who seek to take him down. He's the, he is the object of conspiracies. There's the conspiracy to uh, overthrow his reign by his son Absalom. So David knew uh, all of these different uh, difficulties, adversities, and he had to uh, turn to the Lord completely to sustain him. In Psalm 31, 7, we read, I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities. And this is a great comfort for us because it, it points out that God pays attention to what we're going through. He is not oblivious to the difficulty. We have two great pictures of the, of God's a great compassion towards us as we go through adversity. One is from Psalm 56, which just occurred to me, and I don't remember the exact verse. It's around 7 or 8. But David is praying there, and he says to the Lord, You put my tears in a bottle. And that's a fascinating little cultural thing because what they, they had these little, uh, little uh, tear bottles that would be used specifically at the time of a funeral, at the time of, uh, of someone's death. And the mourners, the family would uh, preserve their tears in these little tear bottles. And that's the term that, that uh, David uses there. And it's pointing out that God is, is, you, is he puts our tears in a bottle. In other words, he takes specific note of the, the heartache that we're going through, and he, he, he preserves that, as it were, and pays attention to that. He's not just distant. He is very intimately 
focused on the the trials, the heartaches, the difficulties that we face. And so this is the same thing here. And then we see the same kind of thing that takes place at the funeral of Lazarus or after the funeral of Lazarus at the graveside of Lazarus. When Lazarus has been in the grave for four days, Jesus shows up. He's confronted by first Martha and then uh, Mary because he didn't get there in time. They're a little bit critical that if you had just gotten here in time, he wouldn't have died. And that's when Jesus uh, makes the well-known statement that I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Martha, do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, Lord, I do. And this is the focal point of the gospel, believing Jesus is who he claims to be. And then he goes on and he sees all the mourners and all the crowd there. And we have that great verse that if you can't memorize anything in Scripture, you can memorize this verse. It's the shortest English verse, Jesus wept. And again and again, I hear people talk about this verse and they say, well, Jesus Jesus wept for his friend, the death of his friend Lazarus. And that may tell a nice story, but if you just go back in the context a little bit earlier in John 11, it was Jesus makes this statement that 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 to his disciples that Lazarus is sick unto death for the glory of God. Jesus makes a statement earlier that he's clearly aware of the fact that the reason he delayed coming to Bethany was because he had a plan, and that plan was for Lazarus to die and be buried and go into the grave so that he could demonstrate his power over death by raising Lazarus from the, from the dead. So he's not weeping for Lazarus, over grief for Lazarus. He's weeping because he looks at the crowd and they are distraught in grief because of death, and he has compassion for them because God never intended us to go through death. Death is, the, is an abnormal state. We've been living in an abnormal world ever since Adam uh, bit into the fruit. When he ate that fruit, we went from a perfect creation to a corrupt creation, and everything we experience is not what God originally intended. And so grief is a marker that something's wrong. And if you've ever experienced the death of someone close to you, if you've ever even experienced the death of a pet, there's something in your soul that says, this isn't right. There's something wrong about this. And that's right. That's why God puts that death there. It grabs our attention and because it's the result of living in a corrupt world. It is a big red flag that something's not right and something needs to be fixed, and the only way it can be fixed is to trust in Christ as Savior. So these passages emphasize the great compassion of God for us in the midst of uh, hardship, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of adversity. Psalm thirty-seven, thirty-nine. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Now, this is an important verse because... It tells us from an Old Testament context that the word salvation, which rarely in the Old Testament refers to eternal salvation. To my knowledge, uh, if it's used as a synonym for justification and getting into heaven when you die, it is rare. One or two times. I haven't had time to go through every single use 
but it is rare, it, especially in the Psalms. The Psalms focus on current crisis, current catastrophes, adversity in the life of the psalmist, and he prays that God would deliver him. In other words, get me through this terrible situation, Lord. Deliver me out of it so I can go forward and enjoy all the blessings of life that you've given me. So when David says, but the salvation of the righteous, he's talking not about eternal justification. He's talking about present time, phase two, deliverance from some sort of crisis or adversity. Uh, deliverance of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And then verse uh, chapter 41, verse 1, David says, Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. Again, emphasizing that God's the one who delivers us. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't secondary means or causes or things that we can do. But ultimately, the one who delivers us is God, and we have to put our faith and trust in him. And sometimes there, there are no secondary things that we can do. Uh, sometimes there are some secondary things that we can do depending on the situation, depending on, on the circumstance. When, when uh, Hezekiah was pinned in by the armies of Assyria, there wasn't a thing he could do, and he prayed to God, and God sent uh, the Lord Jesus Christ sent an angel. The Lord Jesus Christ was the messenger, and they destroyed the and annihilated the army of Sennacherib. They all, they got up the next morning. The army was was dead or gone, and so that is a picture of having to rely exclusively on the Lord and not do anything. But there are other examples where uh, you did something. It may not make a whole lot of sense, like at Jericho. You're going to conquer Jericho, and God says, okay, what you're going to do is you're going to keep completely silent, no words, no utterance, no, no cheerleading, no catcalling. You're going to walk one day, each day, once around the walls of Jericho, and then leave. And the last day you're going to walk around seven times, and at the end you're going to blow the trumpets and you're going to yell, and the walls will fall down. But then what did they do? Then they had to go in and fight. You had uh, the next campaign was at AI, a completely different strategy. So sometimes God has, there are things that we can do secondarily, but uh, ultimately we trust in the Lord and the Lord alone. And this applies to every area of, of problem that we have in life. Okay, so one other couple of verses, Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge, a very present help in trouble. This is a verse that many of us have memorized. God is always present. He's our refuge. It's his strength. He's, he's there in times of trouble. And then Psalm 50, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Great promise to take and to learn for times of trouble. And then from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10:13 a verse we'll come back to several times in this in this study no temptation and the word there for temptation is the same word that's used in our passage in 1 Peter for trial and it's used that way it can mean trial it can mean test it can mean temptation we'll talk about the distinctions there as we go along uh, no te- temptation has overtaken you or no test has overtaken you except such as is common to man but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested beyond your ability. 
Now, that doesn't mean that when you pray, he's going to make it go away, but he gives us the resources to handle it, and I believe that primarily that's the resources of the Word of God plus the Spirit of God. He will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it or endure it, and endurance is a critical doctrine in First Peter and primarily in James related to how to handle, how to handle testing. Now, what I want to do is just for a moment here, put these verses up on the text, verses 6 through 9. This is actually one sentence in the Greek, and it's one thought, but like the first sentence, Peter tends to put the main clause right up front, and then everything else that follows it are just uh, secondary and tertiary uh, clauses related to uh, the main idea. And so he starts off, and let me, I want to read this. I want you to think about this, and then we're going to do a little exercise. Uh, I want you to think about this, and it's an application of observation, like in Bible study methods, and to see what you see in this passage. What are the key words, the key terms? Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, You have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So just a little fun thing. What are some of the key words that you see uh, in this particular passage as you read through that? Just shout it out. John's not here tonight. John would be the first one with three or four things. So what? Rejoice. Rejoice. We have rejoice and joy three times. Rejoice in verse 6. And then he comes back to it at the end of verse 8, rejoice with joy inexpressible. So what, what, what do you think that tells you about what he's talking about here, the primary idea that he's talking about? It's going to be joy. Uh, what else do you see? Faith. Hmm? Faith. faith. We have faith and believing that are used twice. The genuineness of your faith in, in verse 7 uh, the, uh, the end of your faith in verse 9, and yet believing in one eight. So three times you have uh, faith mentioned. We're going to have to decide exactly what that means. What else do you see? Trials and testing. Trials, testing. See various trials in one six, and the testing by fire. But what's, what's fascinating here, and I'll point this out in just a minute, uh, is that those are really different words and you think they're connected in English but they're not in the Greek. What else? Anybody see anything else? Hmm? Well, that's right. What a repetition. Praise, honor, and glory. And glory is actually mentioned twice at the end of verse 7, glory, and at the end of verse 8, glory. So that's important. Well, I kind of color-coded this a little bit so you can to point out some of the things that are similar. You have, as we uh, uh, pointed out, uh, rejoice three times the idea of joy, rejoice twice, and joy once. Uh, 
Then you have the word grieved. Uh, and often we in the Christian life, there's sort of this myth that if I'm walking by the Spirit, I'm going to have joy and I'm not going to have sorrow. And what we have in Scripture is the reality that you have both. You can have joy, which overrides everything, at the same time that you are going through grief or sorrow, some sort of uh, what we would often consider to be a negative emotional situation. Uh, you're, you're saddened by something. And so uh, grieve, we have to take a look at that. And you're grieved by these various trials. So that tells us that these aren't positive tests. These are negative tests of adversity. Then if you notice in verse 7, I have the word genuineness and the word tested by fire, both marked in, uh, in green. And that's because they are both based on the same word. The genuineness of your faith is the Greek word dakimion, which means a testing or an evaluation. And it's only used in two places. It's used here in 1 Peter uh, 1.7, and it's used, guess where else? James chapter 1, verse 3. And so there's another one of our connections. By the the way, you have joy mentioned in James 1.2, counted all joy. You have various trials mentioned here. It's the same Greek terminology that you have in James 1-2 when you encounter uh, various trials. You have, um, as we pointed out, glory mentioned in verse 7 and again at the end of verse 8. And that glory is at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And does anybody see anything going on in verse 7 that reminds them of another passage in Scripture other than James 1? The judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where we also have this, the word dokimazo, the verb form there that you, that's translated tested by fire here. All of our works are tested by fire at the judgment seat of Christ to see what is left, to see what is approved, to see what survives, and that's identified as gold, silver, and precious stones. So there's a lot of similarity there. Also, in verse 8, we see a motivational factor, and that is that we haven't, though we haven't seen the Lord Jesus Christ, we love him. And that love for the Lord Jesus Christ, we often refer to as occupation with Christ, that motivates us uh, by faith. And so, uh, though having not seen Though having not seen you, you love, though you have, whom having not seen, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet by believing, I think that should be translated as an instrumental participle there, by believing we rejoice with joy. Faith is the means that leads us to rejoicing with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. And then verse 9 starts off with another participle, receiving, and this should be a temporal participle, when you receive the end of your faith. Okay, so we have faith mentioned again. So that just gives us a little bit of a flyover. And as I mentioned in verse 7, there's a similarity with 1 Corinthians 3.13, talking about the judgment seat of Christ, that each one's work uh, will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work. And there's our verb, dakimazo. 
which doesn't mean to test to show where our failures are, but to test to show where our successes are. That's really important. When you take uh, when you take a raw metal ore, gold or silver, and you refine it, you put it in the fire, and the fire burns off the dross. It burns off the impurities so that what's left is what's of value. That's what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. The focal point is not to expose the failures. It's not to expose the wood, wood, hay, and straw. It's to destroy the wood, hay, and straw so that what's left is that which goes into eternity, that which has, that which has value. So the other thing we, we can say when we look at these four chapters, four, ver, four verses, one sentence, is just summarizing it in, in one phrase, and that is, uh, rejoicing in the midst of the present trial because our knowledge of the word, I want to point that out, that's critical all through Peter. It's the knowledge of the word uh, and our love for Christ which enables us to look to a future deliverance uh, in this life. In other words, we're going to be delivered from this test a future deliverance in this wife, as well as the glories to come. So it's not just something far off in eternity, everything's going to get resolved, but there's a, a sense of, of present deliverance as well. Now, I want to put these verses up here, and I want to go through this uh, flyover a little bit based on what we just did and just point out some things. First of all, it starts with this phrase, in this. And when we look at that, we ought to be asking the question, in this what? And this takes us back to what was just said. I'm going to talk about it more in detail. But this is basically a reference back to, back to verses 2 through 4, which focuses on the doctrine of everything that God has in his plan for us, from regeneration in verse 3 to the rewards of our inheritance in verse 5 that this is the doctrine, in that, what he says in 3 through 5, in that we greatly rejoice, and it's that doctrine, that understanding of God's plan for each one of us, that we can rejoice in the midst of fiery trials. So the, the first thing we note in that phrase is it takes us right back to what we studied in verses 3 through 5. Second thing we see is that Peter tells us, just like James, that joy is critical as a problem-solving device. And we have to understand joy. We need to focus on joy. It is a mental attitude, and we'll learn some things about it as we go along this evening, that joy is what enables us to get through the trials. This is a gift of God in one sense. It's developed through God the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural. It's not something that we conjure up. It's not happiness. Uh, there are three things you need to learn about joy. First of all, to the degree that we base our happiness on people, circumstances, or events, to that degree we are enslaved by those things. Now, if, just think about that a little bit. That is a profound statement because every one of us has these things that we don't think about that if I just had enough money, if I just had this status symbol, that status symbol, this card, that card, if this person liked me or that person liked me, if I just achieved these goals in life, then I would be happy. What we're saying is our mental attitude state of happiness 
is really dependent upon people treating us, certain people treating us a certain way, certain circumstances conforming to the way that we would like them to conform, and certain events taking place in our lives. So the degree to which we base our happiness on people, circumstances, or events, to that degree we become enslaved to those things. We're saying, I can't be happy unless this happens. Well, if that never happens, then you're saying, I'll never be happy. And you've just made yourself a slave and put yourself in a horrible situation. Second thing is when we base our happiness on people's circumstances and events, which basically the details of life, whatever those might be, then you put those people or those events in charge of your emotional well-being. Somebody may say, I just want so-and-so to love me. Well, basically, you just put them in charge of your emotional well-being. If they don't like you, if they don't treat you with respect, if they don't uh, respond to you a certain way, then what you've just said is that, that they're in charge, not me. It's not up to my volition. It's up to that person. And if they don't treat me right, I'm going to be miserable. Everything's in, in their hands. And, and we can't do that. The, uh, happiness, I think Tuesday night I mentioned a couple of profs I had at Dallas Seminary who were taught pastoral psychology um, uh, I think it was uh, Paul Meyer and Frank Minnerth, and they wrote a book. The title of the book was great. The book wasn't. The title of the book was great. It was Happiness is a Choice. And that's the point, is that happiness or joy is a result of your volitional decision to focus on the Word of God and let that dictate the mentality uh, of your and the mental state of your soul. You can't become enslaved to circumstances, You can't let people control your emotions. Third thing, if you base your happiness on the details of life, people, circumstances, or events, then I will guarantee you, you will be miserable and you will never be happy in life. One day somebody looks at you and smiles and you're on top of the world. The next day they look at you and frown and and you just crater. The most extreme example I can think of this was back when I was a counselor at Camp Penile, and you know I was probably 20 or 21 at the time, and most of the counselors were 19, 20, 21. And there was one week of summer camp that we all were hoping we would be somewhere else, and that was the week of older girls camp. And older girls camp was for girls who were 13 through 15. And girls that are 13 through 15 just have all kinds of emotional instabilities. And we used to laugh. So, you know, we could be sitting at the table with the staff that was separated from the campers, and we might inadvertently let our eye gaze over the area where the campers were, and some girl might think we were looking at them, and suddenly she had a crush on you. And the next day you walked right by her and didn't even smile, and you just created a problem for her counselor for the next three days. And then... See, that's what happens is that when we base our happiness on how somebody else responds to us, we're just guaranteed that we're going to be uh, be miserable. Uh, it's not nice to have somebody who treats us with no respect, and it's not nice when someone hurts our feelings, but we can't let our ultimate stability be dependent and our joy be dependent upon people, circumstances, and events. So 
we're going to get into an important study of what the Bible teaches about joy. Now, a third thing that we see here is that Peter emphasizes joy in the battle when we face trials. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. And through, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by these various trials. Now, the word for trial essentially means a test. It can mean a temptation, and it can mean a, a, an external or objective test. And, and uh, the, the word basically means uh, to be put in a situation where you have to make a choice. And a lot of Christians get the idea that a test is something where you have to make a big decision. We are tested 60 seconds out of every minute, 60 minutes out of every hour, and 24 hours out of every day, and seven days out of every week. Because a test is as simple as, are you going to think thoughts that honor God right now or not? Are you going to uh, respond in anger, resentment, hostility to the jerk who just cut you off in traffic? Or are you going to turn them over to the Lord and let him handle it? Uh, every second we have a choice as to whether we're going to be walking by the Spirit or walking according to the sin nature. And that's ultimately what the test is. Are you going to respond to this circumstance? And it may be just what we're doing in our spare time, what we're doing just sitting around thinking and where our thoughts go. Are we going to dwell on what somebody did to us and have thoughts that relate to to uh, thinking about how we can get back at them or how joyful it would make us if God would just let us witness his discipline on them. I know nobody here has ever thought that. Uh, but we, we every moment is really a test. How are we going to spend that time? Paul says we're to redeem the time. And so how are we spending it? So every moment is really a test. It may not be a big test. Uh, it may be just how are you spending th- these five seconds? Is it fo- focused on the Lord, walking by the Spirit, or not? That doesn't mean you're thinking about Scripture, but it means that Philippians uh, 4, uh, 7, that we're thinking on those things, whatsoever is right, whatsoever is virtuous, whatsoever is honest, whatsoever is of good report. Think on these things, Paul says. Are we thinking on those things or are we thinking about other things? So that has to do with the test. And so we have to have joy to face those all those tests. Fourth, there's a clear recognition in verse 6 that the Christian life will have times of emotional ups and downs. We're going to have times when we're discouraged. We're going to have times perhaps where we're distressed. We're going to have times when we go through periods of grief. It's not all going to be a mountaintop manic experience. There are going to be times when it's not so hot. Uh, we're responding to the fact that there are uh, terrible things that happen in, in the devil's world. But even though we sorrow and grieve, we still have hope and we still have joy. The Lord Jesus Christ, the, the word that's used here for, gr- for grieved is the word lupeo in the Greek, and other forms of it are used to describe the sorrow that the Lord Jesus Christ experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he went to the cross. Uh, Paul uses the same word when he says about uh, experiencing the death of a loved one, that we sorrow but not like those who have no hope. Uh, So that, that 
this is a reality in the life of believers. So we need to be honest about that, that it's not wrong to grieve or be sad or sorrowful at times. It doesn't mean that you're not walking by the Spirit. But if you respond to that sorrow and grief and sadness in your life wrongly, then that, then what you're doing is you're trying to handle those uh, sorrowful emotions through sin, through your own efforts. Jesus had sorrow as he looks at the cross. Now, he's got two options. Run from the cross, embrace the cross. He embraced the cross. He said, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about what's going to happen on the cross. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So the option is there. He's got the sorrow, but it depends on what he's going to do with it as to whether it goes to sin or not to sin. So sometimes life is just going to be that way. We may go through periods of grief and sorrow over over any number of things. It may be difficult. You may go through a time when you're unemployed and it is a terrible struggle. But it's also a great opportunity to trust the Lord and to grow spiritually. And I know from times that I've gone through difficult times, when you're in it, you don't see how God is refining you. Maybe 10 years later, you look back and you say, you know, that was a miserable experience, but the Lord certainly taught me a lot, and I grew through it, but I hated every minute of it. Um, So we can grieve uh, through various trials. Fifth thing that we see here is that the important role that testing plays. It's a testing for evaluation. It's that word that's used in verse 7, that the genuineness, and it has the idea, we'll get into the details of the word meeting later on, it has the idea of the approval, or it's demonstrating the value of the faith that you have. And the faith here, we have to ask the question, is this the act of trusting God in terms like the faith rest drill, or is it uh, the doctrine that's in our soul and using the doctrine that's in our soul? And I think that's more the focus here. That's what James is saying, knowing that the testing of your faith. A lot of people think, oh, you'll hear this, just have faith. In what? What are you supposed to have faith in? Faith in the Word. So it's the doctrinal content of your soul that's being tested. You've learned it. You've been in Bible class. you got 15 Bible doctrine notebooks, but is it in your soul, and are you using it in the midst of a difficult situation? That's what's being tested. Are you willing to trust the doctrine that you've learned? And it's and then he uses the imagery, though it is tested by fire. Later in chapter 5, he talks about, uh, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. It's just a metaphor for the intensity of the adversity. And that the end result of this is going to bring praise, honor, and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ at his at the revelation. So we see the role, the importance of testing plays, and the term the revelation of Jesus Christ refers to the rapture and then the bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ that comes after the rapture. That's when the works of the believer are going to be evaluated and tested, and that's where rewards and inheritance uh, will be passed out. So the fifth point, we see the important role the testing plays. Six, the revelation of Jesus Christ refers to the rapture, uh, which immediately is immediately followed by the judgment seat of Christ. And then in verse 7, we have a parenthetical ellipsis here 
a parenthetical phrase to tell us uh, again about the motivation that Jesus Christ is the one whom we haven't seen, and we though we haven't seen him, we love him, and that motivates us to keep trusting him so that we can have that joy in our soul. So that, that little parenthetical uh, statement of verse 8 emphasizes that it is by believing that we rejoice, by using the faith rest drill there. Uh, and then uh, we experience joy inexpressible and full of glory. We'll get into some of those details a little later on. Then the eighth thing we see is in verse 9, it says receiving. If you use a New American Standard, it uses the word obtaining. And it's the idea that when we, that, that receiving the end of your faith. Now, when we look at that word end, we often think that the end of a series of things. So we think of the end of our life. We think you look at this, I pointed out the last couple of weeks, it looks like we're talking about the end game at glorification at the judgment seat of Christ. But it's not talking about that. It's talking about the, the end result, the goal or the outcome of our faith. You're trusting God in the midst of a trial, and what's the outcome? It's what David prayed for throughout the Psalms, that you'll deliver me from my enemies. And then when God delivers him from his enemies, then he rejoices that God has delivered him from his enemies. So this is talking about uh, going through a time of challenge, a time of heartache, a time of difficulty, and coming out of the other end, and we're then able to rejoice exceedingly. He says, if, if we put this together, it says, by believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, when you receive the end of your faith. So it's talking about that that celebration that occurs at the at, at when we get out the other end of the tunnel of of adversity. Okay, so that gives us a, a good flyover, uh, helps us understand uh, where where we're headed, and that the end result is that that Peter's talking about is how we can experience in our lives uh, deliverance in the midst of trials and in the midst in the midst of testing. Okay. Now let's just start a little bit, get started a little bit into uh James chapter one verse two as part of background. So we're at first Peter, so you just turn back a few pages. How convenient James and Peter are so close together. Just turn back three or four pages to James chapter one. Okay, and I put these first verses this is part of the introduction of James. And he says, My brethren, which indicates that he's talking to believers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And that word, various trials, as I said earlier, is the same phrase that's used in First Peter. Knowing you're able to count it joy because you know that the testing, same word used for testing, it's dichemion uh, uh, here, uh, same word that's used over in First Peter. The testing of your faith, same word, pistis, same word, talking about the doctrine in your soul, produces endurance, but let endurance have its perfect work. Now, perfect work is the adjective telios. When I was talking about the end of your faith, the Greek word there for end of your faith, the goal, the outcome of your faith, is the Greek word telos. 
T-E-L-O-S. It's just different forms in the same word group referring to reaching an ultimate goal. And with James, he uses uh, teleos to emphasize maturity, that this is the way in which God, uh, God matures us. Now, one of the things that we see in, in 1 Peter is Peter starts off in verse 6 saying, In this you greatly rejoice. And I pointed out that the in this takes us back to verses 2 through 4. They, the believers should be thinking about God's plan for their life from regeneration to rewards. And that leads to joy. Now, when we look at James... James just comes right out with this command, and he says, count it all joy. Now, there's an imperative. It's the Greek word hegeomai, which was an accounting term, to add up the numbers, add up the data, and come to a conclusion. And so you look at life, you look at this trial, you look at whatever's going on in your life, and you add up the data, which includes all the promises and provisions of God, and the result is that the sum of everything is joy. And it's a command here. It's an aorist imperative. And an aorist imperative emphasizes priority. And James is really interesting how he uses his imperatives. We're not going to get into that. But he usually starts off a section punching a command. And then it's followed up with a lot of present imperatives, which talk about uh, your ongoing uh, standard operating procedure in, in the Christian life. So he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So I'm going to stop here because I've got about six points on uh, the role of joy in the believer's life, and that'll probably take about uh, 10 minutes or so. So I'm going to stop here, and we will pick up here next time. Father, we're thankful that we had this time to study your word, to be reminded of your uh, compassion and care for us, that uh, you do not ignore the troubles, the heartaches, the traumas that we go through living in the devil's world, and that you have made provision for everyone. There's not one thing we go through in life that you haven't provided for perfectly through your plan and through the promises and the principles that are laid out in your word. Father, we pray that as we go through the study on adversity that you would you would help us to understand these principles, think biblically, think in terms of divine viewpoint, develop wisdom and skillful living in us as we seek to apply these things to our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.